Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our executive pastor, Pastor Brandon McPherson, with this week's sermon. I want to uh, go ahead and ask you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. We are uh, in the series of uh, 1 Corinthians as we are going verse by verse uh, through that book and on this Sunday, Family Integrated Worship, we do set aside that time and just sort of get away from that series for a moment. And we've been doing a series called The Stories of the Bible. And so today I want to us to unpack and look at the story of Mephibosheth. And that is maybe a familiar story uh, to some of you and maybe unfamiliar to others. I hope just as we learn this and uh, really understand what's going on there in Second Samuel chapter 9. Um, I don't know if you felt this, but did anyone, maybe Thursday morning you woke up and you uh, just felt like something was different, and if, it, it definitely was, and, and the difference that happened Thursday was that uh, spring training began for baseball. You already knew that though, right? Uh, and so, yes, thank you. So you woke up that morning and, and maybe you felt like it was, something was just a little different, and then you realized, oh yes, we're going to have baseball from this day on until the fall, and what a wonderful thing uh, that is. And so I'm thankful that baseball has begun, and even as you're thinking about that, because I know it's been on your mind, let's put it aside for a moment as we get into the Word, but as I was thinking on it, I, you know, I love baseball, and I love watching any team play, uh, but specifically, I love watching the Atlanta Braves play and win, win as they often do. That's right, buddy. And um, as I... Uh, you know, it, with any sports team, you, you would have seasons where you, things don't look as good, right? We've got some Oriole fans here. He, they're doing well now, but they've, they've went through some tough times, right? We, every team goes through its difficult seasons. And any sports fan will notice that if you go to your team's stadium in the seasons where they're doing well, the tickets are more expensive and the seats are harder to find. And when your team is not doing well, tickets are often cheaper sometimes, and yet, and there's many more seats available because of what is called fair weather fans. And so uh, this does have a point to our text, don't worry, I'm not just here to talk baseball, but um, a fair weather fan, if you don't know, is a person who is supportive of and enthusiastic about a sports team only when that team is performing well. That's a fair-weathered fan. It's someone that only shows up when they are doing well and uh, just completely forgets about the team when they are not. In fact, uh, this is common in all sports and with all fans. Uh, it's difficult at times to watch your team suffer, and yet the real fans just suffer with them, right? And uh, in fact, even um, speaking of suffering, I, I'm not trying to throw this school under the bus, but we, uh, w me and my kids have come to a, a bunch of the basketball games here, and uh, their season didn't go so well. They were 5-17. and 17. It wasn't, wasn't the best season, but it was still fun to watch, and we would come and uh, get snacks and hang out in the bleachers and watch the varsity boys uh, basketball team play. And one of the first games that we came to, I noticed that the crowds just seemed different. When I was in high school, I even came to this school at times for high school uh, basketball. 
we would be in the stands and the, the stands would be full and we would be like berating one another, like the fans would, like the student sections. Did you ever like stand in the student section and you're just going crazy and you're, you know, you're looking at the scoreboard and everything's going crazy? And, and the, so the first game that we came to here, there was no student section. There was hardly any fans. And I was like, what's going on? And then I realized that they were playing Verina. And the end score, the, the scoring uh, at the completion of the game, the Verina won 77 to 38. They smoked them. And I was like, whoa, that's why there wasn't a student section. And then the next game that we came to, Mechanicsville was playing Maggie Walker. And the student section was packed. And they were so full of life. And, and Mechanicsville beat them 85 to 25. And you would have just thought, I mean, the student section was like, we murdered you, you know. And they are excited. And there's, the crowd is just being pumped up. And I was like, man, what a cheap way of supporting the team. Only showing up to the games where you know your team is going to win. And so the story here in 2 Samuel chapter 9 is one of even in the midst of defeat and even in the midst of uh, there not being accountability to show up, David does so in a very special way. And so I want us to keep that in mind as we look at this text. If you would, uh, just for a moment, would you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word? Um, If you have your Bible, that's wonderful, on your phone, tablet, whatever it might be. I also want to make you aware that we do have Uh, some Bibles out there in the foyer, and feel free to grab one. If you do not have one, just take it, read it, and uh, allow it to work in your life. 2 Samuel chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show him or show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel at Lodibar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel at Lodibar. And Mephibosheth, the son of David, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that I should show regard, or that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your, father, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. 
Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so, shall, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we give thanks once again, Lord, for your word. I thank you for this time, and we just pray, Lord, that you would do what only you could do. Lord, change the hearts of man. Lord, we thank you and praise you for the work that you have done, are doing, and continue to do through your word. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As I had mentioned with the, the sports team analogy that commitment is an interesting concept. It is something that we are far more inclined to do, that is be committed to something or someone when it is self-serving, aren't we? That we are, we are more likely to, be, to commit ourselves and fulfill that commitment if it's something that brings us joy, if it's something that challenges us in a way that we will accept, if it's something that is pleasing to us. But that isn't what commitment necessarily always is, is it? It is uh, if you are raising children, for instance, you are committed to them, and that commitment is not always joyous, right? And we, we don't want to say loud amens with the kids in here, but we, don't you agree, parents? It is difficult at times to stay committed to that, and yet we must. And so self-serving cannot always be the product of our commitment or even our covenant, as I was preparing for this lesson, I came across a theologian that I had, I've read some of his stuff, it's been a while, uh, and I just re-familiarized myself with his life and found something about him uh, that I didn't know to be very interesting. And uh, if you're not familiar with B.B. Uh, Warfield, I would really suggest some of his stuff. He's an incredible author and uh, is very deep. If you're looking for an easy read, this is not the author for you. He is uh, complex, and I would highly recommend his book, The Plan of Salvation. It is a short book that will take you forever to get through um, because of the complexity of it. He, was, uh, he served as the president in, of the Princeton Seminary. He was born in 1851. He was uh, what many believe to be the last president of Princeton that didn't fall off into some sort of liberal ideology. And so he is regarded as uh, a very good and helpful uh, pr uh, president of this seminary at that time. He was also the head professor of the Reformed theology there at that seminary from 1886 all the way to his death in 1921. He was, again, an author and a leader and a wonderful speaker. But what some people may not know about him and what I hadn't known as I was looking him up is that he had gotten married, and him and his wife, when he was uh, in doing, you know, as a professor in the seminary, they went on a honeymoon, and during this honeymoon, there is some sort of weird occurrence that takes place. I don't know. I mean, I did my best to research it. I don't know what happened. It, it sounds like there was some sort of 
an incredible storm that came upon them while they were like walking down a path. And I don't know if she was struck by lightning or what had happened, but on their honeymoon, she became an invalid. She was no longer able to uh, really communicate so much anymore. She wasn't able to take care of herself anymore. And this was on their honeymoon. And so B.B. Warfield, for the next 29 years, he was the caretaker to his bride. He would take care of her. In fact, it's reported that he would, that no one ever saw him leave her side for more than two hours at a time. For 29 years, he took care of her. And when asked of that job and what difficulties that that might come, his reply was, she's my wife. I'm committed to her. I'm in covenant with her. What an, an amazing uh, testimony of what covenant is, that it is the highest form of commitment And I want us to look in our text, and we're going to see a word happen three times in this text. Um, And in the Hebrew, in in the ESV, that word is found in verse 1, verse 3, and verse 7, and it just says kindness. And throughout the scripture, you're going to see this in the Old Testament, this word hased, which is this word kindness here, mentioned over 250 times in the Old Testament. And this is a a complex word, and it's a really beautiful word. And so this word gets disguised in a lot of different ways, uh, just trying to, as uh, translators are trying to make the sentences flow correctly with trying to understand this really complicated but yet beautiful word, hased, which means mercy or kindness or goodness, faithfulness, loyalty. In fact, this word is so wonderful that translators often compound two words to help illustrate the glory of it. And so in your scripture in the Old Testament, you might see words like steadfast love or loyal love or loving kindness. And what that is is just describing that word hased. In fact, just to give you a a better, a greater explanation of this, if you look at the book of Micah, chapter 6, verse 8, it says that he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, which is that hased, and to walk humbly with your God. And so the book of Micah just to kind of take us away from 2 Samuel for a moment, it was written uh, by the prophet Micah, and he is known for bringing this message of judgment and yet restoration, and it was this revival that was going to take place in the land of Judah. And just in the seven chapters of the book of Micah, this word hased is mentioned several times. And here in chapter 6 of Micah, he says, the Lord requires this of you to do justice and to love hased and to walk humbly with your God. And that's a wonderful, I think, explanation of that that word, and to to better define here even, to do justice, to seek, it means to seek the good and constant thing amid God's moral law, which, which is, whether it's convenient or not, that's what justice is. Doing the right thing does not always benefit you. That's what we find there in Micah, but to love kindness, this hased is to fulfill the obligations that you said you would fulfill, but do it in a way that reminds you of hased, which is the kindness of God that was first showed to us. So that's what makes this word unique. It's, it's a comparable word to the New Testament when you see the word agape show up, this deep love. When in 1 John 
chapter 4, verse 19, a familiar verse. We love because he first loved us. We agape because he first agaped us. That there is this, there are these types of love, hased and agape, that require God first demonstrating that so that humanity can reflect it. Are you following me? I can't see a single one of you, just so you know. The lights are so bright, so I'm just assuming that you're awake and you're hearing what I'm saying. I'm not kidding. I can't see a single one of you. So, uh, just, um, I hope that you're, you're following with what I'm saying here. So this is agape, yet similar, not the exact same, but they are similar in that humanity cannot display this type of love without it first being displayed to them. This is where Micah really emphasizes, do these things humbly in the sight of the Lord. Because the, to truly act in this way is to be known by Him. To live a life that desires justice, even if it doesn't fit the current social norm, is impossible without the working of the Holy Spirit. This is a special type of kindness. When we see what David is about to do to, for Mephibosheth, it is a special and unique kindness that he is commanded to fulfill. And so, and yet it is a type of love, a type of kindness that we are that we learn from God himself. In fact, I'll take us one more place before we go back to 2 Samuel. God, as you may know, he makes a covenant with, with Moses. He's there and he gives him uh, on Mount Sinai, gives him the law. And in Exodus chapter 33, you see this tragic moment where Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and there are the people, his people, God's people, there worshiping a golden calf. And you can just imagine the fury as Moses has been spending 40 days away in the presence of the Lord, and he has been, uh, it had this amazing encounter and hearing from him, his words being spoken straight to his ears and having this amazing moment. And then to come down, I would think with even maybe excitement of what uh, to give the people, and yet he sees them worshiping something else, and Moses, rightfully so, becomes furious. And if you know the story, he throws the tablets of the law to the ground and they break. And then in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord is telling Moses to come back up and he's going to renew that covenant. And it says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. There is that said abounding in hesed and faithfulness, keeping hesed for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Because Moses knew that this was a, a type of kindness, a type of love that he didn't, that they did not deserve. He, he knew that they had just messed up in such a way that how could we receive this love still? And God reminds him that I am showing you a love that is not contingent on what you have done, but who I am. This is the love that God shows us. And this is the love that David is going to show to Mephibosheth. Look at our text, verse 1 again. Here it is. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show 
kindness. There's that word for Jonathan's sake. And so Jonathan was the father of Mephibosheth, and he was the, Jonathan was the son of Saul. Saul was, if you're not familiar, once the king of Israel, as uh, you know, and, and David would eventually take over that kingdom. And so there was a lot of, of drama that took place between David and Saul, and I'm sure that we'll cover that at one of, one of these sermon series at some point. But this is now about 15 years later, this, that all of these things have passed. David has become king. And there was a commitment that David prior had made to Jonathan that he would show that kind of steadfast love to his descendants. Look with me for a moment at 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 14. Here is that commitment that they make to one another. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love. Show me the hased of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every, every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. And so it has, again, it has been years, and in fact, Jonathan has died. He was uh, killed on uh, Mount uh, Gilboa, and this has been, uh, that was over a decade ago, and his brothers had died, his father had died, uh, Saul's servant had died, or his armor bearer had died. There was this, uh, basically, an, an elimination almost of the entire family of King Saul. And yet, time has passed, and we don't know exactly how, but it, it came to David's remembrance of that covenant that he had made to Jonathan, where even Jonathan had said, I know that you're going to win. I know that all of your enemies are going to be taken care of. And he knew, and Jonathan knew his father was one of David's enemies. And so he just said, David, protect me, protect my family, protect my descendants, or more so his descendants rather than just him. And this is, again, the power of covenant. that The covenant, it is the way that it exercises it is a promise made in the past that directs loyalty in the present. That is what covenant is. The most common covenant that we know of is that of marriage. Uh, and as just mentioned with B.B. Warfield, it should be clear that whether you are married for one year or 50 years, that there is an expectation and a requirement of hased steadfast love, loyalty toward one another. Covenants are not kept because you feel like it. Rather, they are kept because they were made. If you, at some point in your life, uh, look at your spouse and you don't feel like you want to be married to them, too bad. Too bad. And I, I mean, I, I don't know how many times I've had to say this in marriage counseling. Too bad, man. You made a covenant. I don't care how you feel or where you think that this is going or how difficult it has become. You have made a covenant that you are to keep regardless of whether you feel like keeping it or not. And this is important as we even understand our relationship with the Lord that when we read throughout Scripture things like He will never leave you or forsake you, you should look at that and understand that He is committed to you. 
I don't know about you, but I need to hear that, that the Lord is committed to you, that he is not, he is, his commitment to you is not contingent on your faithfulness. And so, be faithful. Knowing that it isn't going to strengthen his faithfulness to you, he is in this. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it nice to be in the company of people that you know have your back? That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? It's a wonderful thing to be with brothers and sisters that you know are committed to this, that are in maybe even covenant with you. And yet, one of the most difficult things that we may ever encounter in our lives, in our life, is when a covenant is broken, when a commitment is broken, when someone that you love dearly, when someone you thought would never betray you, would never say those things to you, turns around and walks away. What a difficult thing that is. And yet nowhere in Scripture does God turn his back on his people. Nowhere does God forsake us. Nowhere does he say, no, you've done too much. I mean, just as we just went over Mount Sinai, the people are, they have literally fashioned themselves an idol and are worshiping a thing. It hasn't even been a month and a half. And the people are already on to another God, and yet God in his steadfast love says, those people I'm committed to. And so David recalls that commitment, and he's asking, he's wondering, is there anyone left a descendant, a relative of Saul, knowing that many of those descendants have been killed in war and battle, and then it's almost as if there's a, you know, sort of, but wait, there, someone is from, from the background, there, there is a man named Ziba who was a previous servant to the royal family of Saul. This man would have known the relatives. He would have known the descendants. He would have known who's still connected, who's still out there. And he says, there may still be one. There is, st- there is still one that exists. There is a boy that exists. We see this boy briefly mentioned toward the beginning of 2 Samuel. You can look in your Bibles in chapter 4. 2 Samuel chapter 4, it says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. And that's all we hear about of him until we finally hear of his name again in chapter 9. And so we have this story of a young five-year-old boy who is being taken away in haste of incoming war and, and adversaries. And in that haste, he, his nurse trips. What, something happens and he becomes crippled in his feet. You have to remember this is a long time ago. This is a different time. This isn't just get, let's take him to the doctor and let's get some rehab and let's, he'll be able to walk again. There's no like Forrest Gump moment to take place in this, uh, in this story that in this day and time, if you were crippled, that was a difficult thing to be placed upon you. In fact, you would probably not do, you wouldn't fare well in society. Uh, it was astonishing to me in 2006, not that long ago, to be walking around the streets of Rome and seeing homeless people that were not homeless due to drug addiction. They were homeless due to deformity. They were homeless because society refused them. 
Society said uh, that you're not going to be a part of this, that, you're, that because of your handicap. I mean, I remember a young boy peddling himself on, a, on, a, on a, uh, a skateboard, and he was amputated from the waist down. And it was just this young boy by himself just peddling through the streets of Rome on a skateboard. And I just thought, what's going on? There are societies that don't care for the weaker. Societies even today that just push those people aside. And Mephibosheth had just been put away. But Ziba remembered him and he says, there is someone. Look at verse 3 of our text, chapter 9. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan, and he is crippled in his feet. Again, about 15 years or so have passed. Mephibosheth is around 20 years old at the time of David's inquiry here. And you have to just think, for 15 years, a decade and a half, Mephibosheth must have thought this is... Life isn't going to get any better. This is it. This is, I have met my match. This is the wall that I have hit. And nothing else can overcome this. Have you, have you felt that way before? Have you, have you come to a place, a, a situation, a, a, a diagnosis, a, a relationship that seems to be broken, whatever, and you come to a place where you say, this is, this is going to be the reality of this forever. This, this ailment, this suffering, this thorn in my flesh, this will be with me forever. I don't think it's a, a broad assumption to believe that Mephibosheth had probably come to that form of thinking. And yet he is called into the king's palace. It says in verse 6, and Mephibosheth, the son of David, son of Saul, came to Mephibosheth, or I'm sorry, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David, David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. Now I would say just to to again present something maybe from the, the silence of scripture, just as we did with Mephibosheth's life feeling, we would imagine, pointless or that it, it isn't going how one would hope. In this moment, I would say, without a doubt, there is fear in Mephibosheth's voice. As he has been brought in front of King David, who he has no relationship with, there are, this kingdom is filled with hundreds of thousands of people, and he has heard of David without a doubt. In fact, this was the, the rival regime to Mephibosheth. This was, I mean, it, it is no longer his descendants that are a part of this kingdom, but it is now David. And here is Mephibosheth in the presence of the king and has no ability to defend himself. Not only would he not, carry, uh, not be carrying a weapon, but there would be an army that would be surrounding David in protection, and he is crippled. He is lame. He couldn't even chase after David. He couldn't defend himself, run from David if he were chased. He knew that whatever was going to happen was in the hands of the king, and so was he. I can't imagine the fear that he must have felt. David was even then a celebrity. They were singing songs of David. Do you remember when the women were singing of how Saul had slain his thousands and David had slain his tens of thousands? Thousands. 
Now, if Saul is your grandfather, you, you think, wow, that man has done some amazing things at war, but there are, there are songs that are being sung in your town of another man who has, who has slain tens of thousands, not just thousands. He knew that David was a man of uh, creative power. He knew that he was a man of, of uh, kingdom power in that time. He knew that he was a man that was powerful in war. The Bible, if you try your best to add it up, between 70 and 90,000 men were slain by the hand of David. And Mephibosheth knew this. It's an interesting how so many so often unbelievers or even believers who are weak in their faith will look at the scripture and see how harsh God is and they all they, they just leave it there that God is just harsh or that he is not loving or how could he do this or allow this and then you in contrast see his grace and his mercy but there is one thing that is never mentioned or never missed in scripture as you read through it and that is the Lord is powerful isn't he? I mean, there are moments in Scripture that are breathtaking, that are hard to believe, where the earth would split open and swallow up people, where if God wants to get something done, he gets it done, doesn't he? He doesn't, he isn't just look at us and, and, and he's not just combing through the world and trying to find the most qualified person so that maybe his plan could be completed. No. If you run from God, he could, he could direct a fish that has no choice but to listen and swallow you up, right? That, I mean, we have men and women throughout all of Scripture who test God and are shown very quickly of God's power and might. And so we see similarities here that even as we, uh, that, that prophets would approach God and in His presence would be there in fear and trembling. Woe is me. And David even, I'm sure, can see the fear in Mephibosheth's face. He says to him in verse 7, he says, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness. Here's that word for the last time in this chapter. Hased. For I will show you Hasad for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat of my table always. What is David offering here? There's three things that we see just in this verse that he says to Mephibosheth, who is, again, his situation is not well. And he is here, and David, the very first thing he says to him, and we see this often in God's mercy, to just begin with, don't be afraid. Don't, don't fear what's going on, that the Lord is at work here. Do not fear Mephibosheth. And so the very first thing that he provides him is protection. What it, that must have been such a, even that, a king telling him to not be afraid, must have been such a freeing moment for this crippled man who had probably lived his entire life in fear, wondering how to survive, how to defend, how to protect. And here he is provided protection. Not only that, it's, he says that I will restore 
to you. So he doesn't just provide protection, but he provides provision that he's going to restore those things that were lost. And then lastly, uh, another P word here, there is protection, provision, and now he gives position that you shall eat at my table, Mephibosheth. To sit at the king's table for even one moment was incredible. To be invited to any banquet or any meal at the king's table of all of the hundreds of thousands of people in that city, most of them would never even enter into the palace, and yet Mephibosheth here is invited not just to enter, but to sit and to eat. Mephibosheth cannot believe this. He cannot fathom this. He can't understand what's taking place. In verse 8, he says he paid homage and he said, what is your servant that you show regard for a dead dog such as I? Mephibosheth knew himself. He knew his capabilities. He knew what he was able to do, but most importantly, he was overwhelmed by what he was not able to do. Here, Mephibosheth falls in line with self-deprecation to what I would say is the highest form. A dog is never regarded as anything good in the, in the Bible. I hate to, to say it to dog lovers, but it's only in recent human history that people started loving dogs. Most of the time, they were regarded as just a filthy animal. In fact, in Proverbs 26, a dog is referred to as the one, the animal that returns to its own vomit like you return to your sin. A dog was worthless, and a dead dog was somehow worth even less. Mephibosheth doesn't even equate himself to a dog. He says, I am but a dead dog. And David's response goes right past Mephibosheth's objection, and he tells him, all that you have lost will be restored to you. All the land, you'll have food, you'll have protection, and you will be able to eat at my table always. And not just that, look at verse 11. And Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. I want you to, to understand that this word like here in verse 11 is the exact same word that we see in Genesis 1 where God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, that there is this, there is this uh, liking that David puts upon Mephibosheth that says that even though you were not born into this family uh, and that you were even born into a family that was led by a corrupt king that once, cons- that once considered David an enemy, he took him and he gives him the security that can only be provided by a king. Food that can only be found near a king and a place at the table that only belongs to the king. Christian, I, I need you, I myself, we, we all need to better understand what does it mean to truly be in Christ. I've preached sermon after sermon, and 
I've prayed forgiveness and I and for these types of sermons where I have convicted people in the wrong way to find ways to qualify themselves in which they can come and have a seat at the table. This is not how the scripture depicts this story. It is not how we see how God's love is shown to us. It is not a love in which we have to make ourselves able to walk in order to have a seat there at the table. David never once mentions Mephibosheth's disability. He never brings it up. He, he just lets him know that he has chosen him, that he has committed to him through this covenant, and that he will place him at this table. It is, it is overwhelming to consider the invitation that we have been given, that you are completely his and that he took you at your absolute weakest. Do you understand do you understand that in the, even in this short story, the, the, noticing very clearly the qualifications that Mephibosheth has, which are none, and he is given this seat? At your weakest, he loves you. Romans 5 says as much. In verse 6, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a, a good person, uh, or, or, I'm sorry, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. What he's saying is that there are those that are going to, that, yeah, there will be men that will lay down their lives for others. But they're going to lay their lives down for others because they care for that person or they there's a, there's a reason behind it. it there, or, I'm sorry, there is a, um, an objective in their mind. It's for their people, for their tribe. But this isn't the same type of love that God gives. It's a, an even more unique, special love. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then notice what we receive. It's the same thing that, we, that David gives to Mephibosheth. Verse 9 of chapter 5 in Romans. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. He gives the protection. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. There is the provision. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. There is the position. Christian, do you understand what has been provided to you? If I'm honest with you, it, that doesn't always feel like it's true, does it? We sometimes get so caught up in our own lives and we, we forget about the protection that God gives us. 
We forget about the provision that He's given us. We can get so consumed with this life that we forget of eternal life. We forget the position that He has taken us from and placed us within. In fact, I think it should also be made note the last verse of our text here. Verse 13, so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. Notice that Mephibosheth was, continued to be crippled, and yet he remained at the king's table. This is where the prosperity gospel gets it so wrong. That the, the offering to come and be with the king is not always a, a, an offering that says everything will be fixed. In fact, if, if we're not careful, we might look at the, the crippleness of ourselves and we will forget of the provision and the, the position and the, the protection that God has given us. The love that Christ bestows upon us is complete in its protection and its provision and its position But that doesn't mean that the temporal pains of this world just cease. And so if you are here today and you are wrestling with that, even accepting the love that God has given you, despite you knowing of yourself the depravity of your heart, but I am but a dead dog. If you are at any point in your life trying to come to a place where you will not accept his offer until you feel like you deserve it, you will never accept it. Mephibosheth could have never imagined. He couldn't even physically walk into that place. And yet his grace is sufficient. I would like for us, I'm, I'm purposefully preaching a short sermon today. We're going to have communion in just a moment. Um, I want to read just a verse to end. And then if we could, I know the kids are in here, if, uh, and that's perfectly fine. I'd like for us just to spend just a few moments in prayer before we have communion. Um, because I, I really want us to pray that the Lord would allow us to grasp this reality more clearly. I think that even as a church, uh, as, mo- as Mosaic, I think that this can become all the more a vibrant of a place if we can begin to walk in the identity that Christ has bestowed upon us and has, says, has said, you can walk in this. That if we can begin to see things out of the, the cloud of just this life and the responsibilities that we have, and we should continue to, to keep and and you know, let our yeses be yes, right? And, and stay uh, true to the course that God has placed us upon that we not miss the position that God has given to us, that being His. So allow me to read this verse and close. And then uh, as Pastor Greg gets ready to come out, I will just want us to have a moment that we can pray together. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, it says this, But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me.
Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.